same rules apply as in I will, when I go through my lectures, I will talk about a lot of things, but then when I tell you that there's something that's high yield, you might want to make a little note in your book about that, or on your, if you're on your computers, you can make a note about it. Um, uh, you can make a note about it on your PowerPoints or wherever it is that you're taking notes. Uh, again, don't sit and write down everything I'm saying. You can record lectures if you want. Okay, no posting there. Um, any questions before we start off? Did you guys look at your course schedule? Okay. Um, so we have to cover plasma membrane first, and then we get into cell organelles, which are the contents of cells. Essentially, we're going to start off looking at the skin of the cell, right? That's the plasma membrane. And certain things that are important from the exam part. When I say something is high yield, that means that there's a high likelihood that it's going to be asked in your exam. Or, but I'm not going to give you the questions, and I can't tell you how it will be asked, but I'm going to tell you that this structure, the function, is important. Okay, so you might want to need to know more about it, or as much as you can know about it. So you can read up things in your textbook, you can read up things in the PowerPoint slide, all that is up to you. Uh, and I will explain certain things that are important. So if you can pay attention, that would be great. Uh, that, like Jesse said, is the most crucial thing uh, that you should do. Yes, you can come in. Who is that? cell is what we're going to look at. Schematically, this appears, now this is again a schematic, right? So a lot of cell biology, you will have to understand because getting images to describe certain things like proteins is really tough. And for those of you who have worked in a cell bio or a molecular bio lab, you learn about molecules, you learn about cells, you learn about proteins. But not everything is how you see it, right? You look at it, but then if you have to explain it to somebody else, you know, kind of break it down, make it a simple schematic or a representation, a schematic representation, and then say, okay, this protein goes here. That's not exactly how it goes, not, but the easiest way to talk about cell biology is to make a cartoon of it, you know, and, and say that this is how pictorially you can represent it, I can, I can draw a circle and call it a protein, but that is obviously not how the protein actually looks. So, but I'm not gonna sit there and draw all the molecules of the protein, all the amino acids in the protein. I'm gonna say, this is a protein, and like the antibody that we saw, right? Immunofluorescence, the protein that it was, it was binding to was just shown as little globs. The green glob and the purple glob. It doesn't matter what protein it is, but it is showing that the antibody is going and binding to it. So that's how cell biology is going to be uh, explained to you. So don't assume that if it's shown like that, that is exactly how it looks in your cell. 
That's not true. Okay? So a lot of cell biology is pictorially represented. It's a representative depiction of what happens. Alright? That's why I don't think there is any mammalian cell that looks like that. Or we're just representing it. Okay? Like a little sphere that's hollow. Covered with a plasma membrane on the outside, and it's got all these little organelles floating inside, but it's floating in something called a cytosol. Inside the nucleus, of course, that's where you have your genetic material, uh, which is transmitted from, that's the one thing that is consistently transmitted from one cell to another. How many of you guys have watched the movie Lucy? You don't know what that is? What do you think about that movie? If you haven't watched it, download a torrent and watch, watch it. it. <laughs> Chances are you're not going to watch it in a movie theater in St. Lucia. Because it's gone, gone back. Even into the woods, it's gone. So, yes. What's it called? Into the woods. Lucy is talking about. Uh, the human brain, brain capacity, how much we use our brains, all that neuropsychology, neuroscience, that is fine. But in the initial parts of Morgan Freeman's speech, he talks about how a cell survives. And that is really crucial. Okay? A cell chooses to be immortal or chooses to, if its environment is not conducive to immortality, it will. You guys watch it first yeah. time ago, you forgot. Sibin, you seem most excited about that movie. I don't remember that one. Okay, choose to. If it cannot be immortal, it chooses to be immortal, but if it cannot because of the environment, it will choose to reproduce. And by reproducing, it will transmit everything it knows to the daughter cells, right? And it applies to cells, but it also applies to organisms. I, I would choose mortality, but I'm not. So, uh, but anyway, the point is that the DNA is what is transmitted, that is the information that is transmitted from one cell to another. Yeah, and I strongly recommend watching this movie, uh, just for the, you know, for the, for the scientific uh, uh, concept. And then, of course, if you want to increase the usage of your brain, that's even better. But I will be the judge of it because I'll see it on your transcript. <laughs> okay? Uh, all right. Now, this is the other thing that is uh, important, the genetic code. How many of you are familiar with this? Okay. How many of you know how to use this? This is not the only representation of the genetic code, however. This is a circular representation. Remember, every amino acid, every amino acid is encoded for by a codon that contains three nucleotides. Call it triplet. That's a codon, a genetic codon. The first nucleotide is represented in the innermost circle, second outside of that, and the third outside of that. 
Now this is showing you the RNA code, it's not the DNA code. The DNA code does not have a U, which is uracil. The RNA code has a uracil which replaces the thymidine. Right? So if you have, now you have to use that interchangeably. So every time uh, you can, you see a U and you are shown a, a DNA code, there will be a T in there. You just have to be able to switch the U and the T interchangeably. So it's not that confusing, just so you know. All right. You could alternatively be given a chart, not a circle, not a pie diagram, a chart that shows you the first letter, the second letter on the top, and the third letter on the right side, the first letter on the left, the second letter on the top, and the third letter on the right side. And it'll tell you what amino acid is encoded for. So you go, uh, say, G, A, C. Okay? In the same way. Look at G, A, C. That's aspartate and aspartic acid. Okay, so you have to be able to read these genetic codes. Uh, if you, even if you just, don't do it right now, even if you just Google genetic code representation, you will see a whole bunch of different images which are showing you those charts. And then start using that. Do not Google it right now. And uh, you have to be able to use that because now this is going to be explained to you in much more detail in biochemistry. But you could be asked a question in your histology exams, cell biology exams, where you're asked to identify a mutation. Okay? So you will be given a normal DNA sequence, and then you will be shown either an insertion or a deletion of a certain amount. And so you have to take those letters away or put in those letters, make your new DNA code, look up the genetic code and see what amino acid sequence the new one or the mutated version uh, is representing. And that might be your options to choose from, the correct answer. Okay? So the question could be like, uh, this is the normal sequence of a section of this gene. So and so, whatever gene, doesn't matter. But in a specific individual, this was found to be uh, these three or these two, amino, uh, these two nucleotides were deleted which means you have to take those two nucleotides out and then make the new DNA sequence. So you're given a scratch paper, right, for your exams, and you're supposed to use that and, and write out the new sequence and then make the new amino acid sequence. And then you get to choose from the options that you are given. So familiarizing yourself with the genetic code is important. You could be asked this question here. You could be asked this question in your biochemistry exam, NBMEs, and yesterday I told you that a lot of these are interchangeable. Okay, even in physiology you see a lot of histology cell biology questions. That's not surprising, so don't compartmentalize your brains right now. Alright? Any questions about this? Yeah, the genetic code will be given, so you don't have to memorize the genetic code. Definitely not. You don't have to memorize the genetic code. It's always provided. Alright? Any other questions? Cool. So what is happening in the genetic code? These ribbons, the golden ribbons, represent your DNA sequence. You can see the two complementary strands there with base pairing. You can see on one side you will have maybe uh, genes are represented on one out of 
both DNA strands. And you could have a gene that is represented uh, so you could have the DNA spread. <laughs> that's one, and that would be another, right? And you could have a gene that is represented here gene A, and you could have another gene that is represented here, which is gene B. However, both these genes share some part of their coding region. That doesn't matter. Okay? It is where you can, you can have them like this, or you can have them set apart, staggered. That's just how it works. Okay? And that's what you are seeing over here. Uh, being represented from the gene, from the DNA sequence, you get an mRNA once transcription begins. And that process is called transcription. We're going to go into it in a little more detail later on. So transcription of DNA basically transcribes the genetic sequence, the DNA sequence, and makes it an mRNA. Where is this located inside the cell? Nucleus. Inside the nucleus. mRNA is created and comes out of the nucleus. So the mRNA is made. Transcription occurs inside the nucleus. As a result of transcription, you have an mRNA molecule, which would be something like this. It would be just this. So that's the mRNA for gene A. And if you have to have mRNA for gene B, it's going to be this. This little piece of mRNA is going to come out. What did I just say was different about mRNA from DNA? UNT. UNT, exactly. UNT. Alright. So that mRNA comes out of the nucleus. It goes to a ribosome. Again, we will be seeing a lot more detail about ribosomes. And gets translated. Transcription first, translation later, outside the nucleus, on a machine called the ribosome. And what it does, what the ribosome does, is it reads these triplet codes. Triplets. And then it puts in amino acids one by one and concatenates them. What do I mean by concatenate? Concatenation of it. Concatenates. It joins them together like a chain. It makes them like a chain. It puts amino acids one after the other, just exactly like how it is on the mRNA transcript. Right? So you can have a big long mRNA, you can have ATG or AUG in this case. Let's see what AUG is. What is AUG over here? The time. Okay, you'll have the time. Let's say the next three uh, letters on the mRNA is CCC. Proline. Proline. Then CAA. Glutamine. Glutamine. 
Glutamine. CAA, glutamine. CAA, okay. Glutamine. All right. So the ribosome is making this amino acid chain. Start off with thionine, proline, glutamine, as it is reading the mRNA sequence. Okay, the triplets. And then that protein, eventually, the amino acid chain, remember, amino acids can be divided into three types based on charge. What is that? Acid, basic, and basic or neutral. And so, when they come close together, they will, if they're too similar charged, remember, they'll like push away from each other and they'll be happiest being away from each other. Or if they have opposite charges, they'll kind of attract each other. They'll be happiest staying close to each other. So in that way, the whole protein then folds to form the mature protein that it is supposed to be. Okay, whatever that protein does. All right? And that's what you have as an eventual protein. Now, a lot of proteins are made up of something called subunits, which will have different... So A and B can be... On, this, on the same protein. They could just be different genes, different subunits. That's why you see different colors over here. And they all come together, they're put together as this big protein. That's why yesterday's lecture, we said protein complexes, molecular complexes, remember? So each one of these is a molecule and a complex. So if we say something like uh, the glucose transporter, which allows glucose to enter a cell, or aquaporin. Aquaporin is like a channel that sits in the cell membrane that allows water to either enter or leave the cell. Right? These are macromolecular proteins, which means they'll have multiple subunits. Doesn't this look like a little channel? If you turn it on its side, it looks like a little barrel. And that's the pore that allows whatever it is supposed to allow to pass through. So these guys made up of Amino acids, these are representing amino acids, and you will see something like this when you go to biochemistry. Glycine being the smallest amino acid, and arginine kind of among the larger ones. Doesn't matter, I told you this is called like a space filling uh, model, uh, where each colored ball represents a different atom, okay? And we are all made up of hydrocarbons, and so you'll see a lot of carbon, Usually, the ones in the middle, the biggest ones, are represented by carbon. The white ones are usually, again, it's different. The smaller ones are hydrogen, the intermediate is oxygen. So you'll see, but you will always see for each amino acid, it's an amino acid. So in organic chemistry, how many of you take an organic chemistry? Okay, good. What is the representation for an acid in organic chemistry? Yeah, I heard it. Say it confidently, though. That way I don't hear you. Right? And what's amino? NH3. NH3? NH2. That's ammonia. NH4 plus. That's a gas. So amino acid, amino acid. That's why they call amino acids because they have one side, which is the amino 
and the other side, which is the acidic part. And then everything in the middle are all these things that are shown over here. Okay? And that will, of course, determine charge. You know about atoms and you know about their valencies and their charge. So eventually, the net charge is going to be determined by what these amino acids are made upon. That's why you end up having basic amino acids, or acidic amino acids, or neutral amino acids. But every amino acid has an NH2 and a COOH, amino acid. You put them together, one after the other, and it'll take, say, this off. This will be one. Put another one, amino acid three, four, five, whatever. This could be, uh, it has to be a methionine. Uh, arginine, valine, and the last one is going to be uh, usually a stop codon, but let's not worry about that. Whatever it is, uh, let's say glycine. And okay, so then you have an amino acid chain because you have bonds that form between the amino terminal of one, of one amino acid and the acidic terminal or the carboxy terminal, it's called the carboxy terminal of another amino acid. So the entire amino acid chain is going to have an amino terminal and a carboxy terminal. Right? So it's an amino acid chain now. Each of these is an amino acid, an amino acid chain. And then of course, based on their charge, they will fold. This can go on for thousands and thousands of amino acids. They will fold. Okay. Look at this, a channel protein that is shown as a 3D representation again. Uh, and you can see that it has been sliced right through the middle. It's like a little donut that has been sliced through the middle. And what you are seeing in red over here is the transported molecule that can go from one side of the protein to another. Right? Because it passes through that little pore in the middle of it. If you turn it on its end, that's the pore right there, right? Now, what do you suppose if you have sodium ions, or if you have potassium ions, or if you have a calcium ion, if you have water molecules, all of these electrolytes, all these uh, ions and water and things like that are present on both sides of this pore, right? So what is it, do you, what do you believe determines whether it's going to allow sodium, or potassium, or calcium, or water from one side to another? Concentration gradients doesn't, it's your, your, I'm talking with regards to a protein. Concentration gradient is with regards to a membrane, semi-permeable membrane. That means, yeah, exactly, the conformation. Somebody else said something? Charge. Charge of what? The proteins that make it up, the channel. Doesn't okay. it has to be hydrophobic? Okay, everybody's right. I'm just going to put it together and make it very specific. So, obviously, these are amino acids here. There's amino acids here. There's amino acids here. There's amino acids on the outside. There's amino acids on the outside. And there's amino acids on the inside. So this is the charge of the amino acids at the opening, 
that is going to allow a specific molecule to fit and a specific molecule, that specific molecule to flow through. Okay, that is what determines what passes through a channel protein. So, it's like if it is specific, only a water molecule can fit in that little uh, opening, and all of these guys, the water molecule is going to be able to interact with them so as to pass through. Okay? You have to understand that aspect. Channel proteins, uh, and we're talking about one type of protein, channel protein. So, but the whole entire structure is determined by the amino acid sequence. And the charge of each amino acid sort of folds into this big structure which is going to do the work. Which is to allow one thing to go from one side to another. That's a channel protein. Okay? If it's an enzyme, obviously it's going to have something that will bind to it at one side, the substrate. And then it is going to be able to change its own shape a little bit because it binds to a substrate. And then it'll end up giving you a product. That's how enzymes work. Alright? Okay. So with this background, we're going to actually move to plasma membrane. Now, we have to keep this in the back of our minds briefly. Because plasma membranes, until we get to the protein part of it, we're talking about a membrane. So, plasma membrane, you know that it is bilayered structure. What do you normally call plasma membrane, cell membrane? What do you call it? Structurally. Structurally. Bilayer, is there something else? Lipid bilayer. Lipid bilayer. It's called a lipid bilayer. That is important. Now, yesterday we talked about paraffin. And lipids, what are they usually? Are they hydrophilic or hydrophobic? Hydrophobic. They're hydrophobic. So you have to keep that in mind. Now these are not fully lipids. These are called uh, phospholipids. Phospholipids. Alright? Now, is this a light micrograph? It's an electron micrograph. Electron micrograph? Transmission, transmission, scanning, TM, TM. Transmission. Yeah. transmission. Are you sure it's transmission? Yeah. It doesn't look 3D. Yeah. It looks 4D. Why, why are you saying it's transmission? It's 2D. I need confident answer. You are right. Yeah, it's a two dimension. It doesn't appear 3D. So it's obviously a two dimension. It's a section. That is going to be looked at on its side. That's a transmission electron micrograph. And you can see that there's two layers to this plasma membrane. Right? So that's like a little sandwich. And you have to think of a sandwich when you think of plasma membrane. It's a lipid bilayer. So obviously there's something that is dense on the outside. And when I say electron, I'm The Charlie Brown and Snoopy Show will return after these messages. Mr. Turtle, how many minutes did it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? Why, he never made it without biting. Ask Mr. Owl. Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? Let's find out. One, two, three, three. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop?
the world may never know. So this is my new sponsor, uh, Tootsie Roll and Tootsie Roll Pop. Uh, I appreciate your support, and let's look forward to more success. When I say dense, I mean electron dense. That's why you see the dark light, and you see a light layer in the middle, right? On an electron micrograph. So, electron dense layers separated by a non-stained layer. That's how a phosphor... Uh, Plasma membrane appears on electron micrography, but at a great magnification, obviously. If you obviously zoom out a little bit, you're going to see it as one line. Correct? Yeah. Okay. <coughs> These numbers, you're going to have to remember. The thickness, numbers don't matter. Okay. The only numbers that matter is that it's two layers divided. All right. So structurally, the phospholipid bilayer, uh, phospholipids are represented like this. Phospholipids basically have a phosphate head, a polar head. It's called a polar head. And what are these little squigglies? They're called fatty acid tails. Fatty acid tails. Okay. So, fat, fatty acid chains. So every phospholipid has two fatty acid chains. Do you know what saturated and unsaturated fatty acids are? Yeah. Saturated has single bonds, unsaturated has double bonds. Way to go, Urban. Saturated means all the bonds are single bonds in the chain. So if I take one of those, I can represent it schematically. So let's make the polar head group and then the fatty acid chain. When you have this, you basically have carbon, 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 right? Yeah. And these are all single. Of course, each carbon atom has four bonds that it can make. Right? And maybe it's got an O or an H you know, to fulfill all four, but between the carbon atoms. Now, if those are all saturated, right? If they're unsaturated, what's going to happen? You have kinks. If one of these is unsaturated, let's say this guy is unsaturated. So you have a double bond. And we say this guy is unsaturated, which means one of its he forms a double bond instead of double single bonds, bonds, right? So if he forms a double bond with this guy, now, uh, in the real physical structure aspect, it's going to bend this tail a little bit. It's going to bend this chain, okay, geometrically. So, you might have something that becomes like this, So instead of having a polar head group and a fatty acid chain that goes like this, you're going to have a polar head group and a fatty acid chain that goes like this. So there's a, there's a kink in that chain. Now, when you use, when you go to the grocery store and buy uh, lipids, what am I talking about?
Unsaturated fatty acid is a saturated fatty acid, right? Where do you find saturated fatty acids? Butter. Butter. Oops, yummy. Right? Why is it unsaturated? Why is it so why is butter different from oil? It's solid. Yeah, it's solid. That's why I'm asking you, why is it why is butter solid and why is oil liquid? How does that contribute? I'll tell you, simple. The saturated fatty acids, they can stack up really well. Unsaturated fatty acids, they're going to be random like this. All these things, they cannot stack up the same way. So it makes it more liquid, more fluid. Whereas butter, saturated fatty acids. They can align themselves next to each other to become more solid. Okay, that's the point of saturated versus unsaturated fatty acids. So now that we have unsaturated fatty acids in the plasma membrane, what does that allow the plasma membrane to do? Absolutely. It's not going to be tough. It's not going to be solid like a sheet. It's going to be fluid. Okay? So, the lipid bilayer, which has fatty acid chains, one of which is usually unsaturated, one of which is usually unsaturated, allows for that lipid bilayer to be a little flexible membrane. Okay, so they, it's sort of fluid. But it's still got two layers. Now, the polar head group, I said polar. Polar head group. What do I what do I mean by polar? Hydrophilic. Why? It has charge. It has charge. It has charge, and because it has charge, it becomes hydrophilic. Alright? So if it's hydrophilic, on the outside there's water, on the inside of the cell there is water. The fatty acids are non-polar. So chances are they're not going to be attracted to water. And that is true. They're hydrophobic. So they are hydrophobic, and this part, which is possible, this is the head group, the polar head group, becomes hydrophilic. That's why now you have two of them that face each other. The hydrophobic portion is in the middle, the hydrophilic portion is on the outside. So if you look at this, up here, that's representing the hydrophilic. This is representing hydrophilic, and that middle layer is that hydrophobic portion. But they are happiest 
not having to deal with water, and happy as dealing with each other. So they stay that way. And they stay that way, and that's why you have a plasma membrane that is happy being like a lipid bilayer all the way through. So chemically, electrically, that's, that's like the optimum arrangement for them to exist. Imagine if you took away one layer, what's going to happen? Craziness. What are these fatty acids going to do? They're going to go crazy because they're hydrophobic. And we don't want to deal with water. Lost the integrity of the plasma membrane, right? So that's why they are like this. Now, so you have phospholipids, which have a polar head group, please remember, and fatty acid chains, which is the hydrophobic part. Remember what is hydrophilic, remember what is hydrophobic. In addition, in the hydrophobic part, in the little sandwich in the middle, you will have molecules of cholesterol. Molecules of cholesterol. The more molecules of cholesterol you have, the thicker or the tougher the plasma membrane becomes. Fewer cholesterol will give you less, uh, will be more fluid. Okay? And that we will apply in a few slides later. We will apply that. We will apply that information. Any questions so far? Okay. So if you thought the cell membrane was only phospholipid bilayer, I have news for you. That's not true. It's not only phospholipid bilayer. Remember those proteins? That channel protein that I told you allows for one thing to come from one side of the protein to another? We're talking about the cell. So it's allowing something to go from the outside or from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell or vice versa. You have to have something because a water molecule, why is a water molecule, why is it going to be difficult for a water molecule to pass through the plasma membrane? The hydrophobic region. Hydrophobic. Hydrophobicity. Right? Now there's some there's some relative uh, preference. But it's easier for a water molecule to pass through a little channel protein called an aquaporin. If you have to have a channel protein, where do you think that channel protein is going to be located? That it is. has to be located in the membrane. Water is one example. You have lots of proteins located on the membrane. Lots of proteins. They're called plasma membrane proteins. Okay? Plasma membrane proteins. And they are represented as these yellow globs that you see interspersed among the phospholipid bilayer. Right? So, some proteins are integral, which means they span the thickness of the plasma membrane. And they, why is it that they're able to span the thickness of the membrane? Think about what we just discussed a couple of slides ago. How does that contribute? She said the charge of the amino acid, and she's right, but I want to know how does it contribute? How does a protein, how is a protein able to span? Protein. Now, there's no kings, they're not talking fatty acids, they're talking protein, which is amino acids. Opposite charged? Yeah, remember when we talked about this, when we talked about this, we talked about all the amino acids and their charges. Yeah, but we talked about the charges of the amino acid, right? So, obviously, the most comfortable conformation is going to allow it to sit 
in here by interacting with the polar head group and you know the cholesterol molecules on the outside. That's how a protein stays in the membrane. And those are called integral membrane proteins. They're always there. They always stay there. Integral membrane proteins. So the protein will have Amino acids. Amino acids. Amino acids. Amino acids. Amino acids. The ones that stay on the side, perhaps. So if you want to actually look at this, you can draw a plasma membrane like so. Right? Lipid bilayer. These guys are going to be facing the outside of the cell. These guys are going to be facing the inside of the cell. What about these guys? So these guys on the side over here are the ones that are going to be able to interact and be comfortable interacting with the plasma phospholipid bilayer. And that's how they stay like that. Yes? So the integral protein on the sides, they're hydrophobic, and then inside the channel it's hydrophilic? Most likely. Not inside the channel, you don't have to worry. It depends on what the channel is, what the channel is permitting. Like I said, it is more specific to the thing, the cargo that is going from one direction to another. Okay, more specific for that. Yeah. So is it um, the opposite charge? Like the um, so the amino acids, right? They are opposite up charged from the protein. And like dissolves in like. Huh? Like dissolves in like. Yeah. So that's that's why they fit in between. Most likely. Most likely. You don't have to worry about that too much. Just remember uh, that. Conformation is the result of amino acids, but then you have phospholipids that are charged and phospholipids that are hydrophobic at one end, hydrophilic at one end, and you know the way that the plasma membrane forms itself, it allows for these membrane proteins. Okay, so these are integral membrane proteins. Um, look at the things that are labeled peripheral membrane proteins. What is the big difference between integral and peripheral from this schematic here? The peripheral don't even enter the, the peripheral don't even enter the plasma membrane, right? But they are membrane proteins nonetheless. So usually peripheral membrane proteins have a little branch or a little stem which allows them to anchor into the plasma membrane. But the whole protein is outside the plasma membrane. But usually it cannot just break free from the plasma membrane and swim away. That little anchor is what keeps it in there, all right? So you can have like an isoprenyl group that will attach it to the plasma membrane, all right? But here's the thing, here's the beautiful part about, uh, actually I'll wait to tell you the beautiful part in one minute. Actually I'll do it. Uh, what is shown over here, in addition to this, are those little green structures. What do you think those are? Carbohydrates. Oh, it says that. <laughs> it says carbohydrates. Carbohydrates. Name one carbohydrate that you use on a daily basis. On a daily basis. One carbohydrate. Glucose. Glucose. <laughs> Glucose, sugar, sucrose. Do you dilute sucrose in water? Yeah. Normally? Yeah. Does sucrose melt? 
or dissolve in water. Yes. So it'll dissolve in water. Why do you think it does that? Because light dissolves in light. Hydrogen bonding. Because it is hydrogen bonding. No, it is hydrophilic. 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 Okay. Now, that's why you have carbohydrate residues, which will be always on the outside, on not inside the membrane. Yes, Abe. Yeah, I'm gonna, uh, that's that's the you just spoiled my took away my little punchline for Wednesday. <laughs> No, but I will talk about that. We have to wrap up this lecture right now. But, but I will talk about that uh, tomorrow. Okay? But the carbohydrates, so some proteins can have these little carbohydrate chains that are put onto them. Okay? And the carbohydrates are usually facing the outside. They're not going to be facing the inside. They're not going to be on the phospholipid, uh, the lipid part, the hydrophobic part. Obviously, they're facing the water part, right? Mm -hmm. That's extracellular. That's intracellular, more often than not. And carbohydrates on proteins have a lot of different functions, which we will talk about in great detail uh, as we go on with this course. Okay? Are we good so far? I'll see you guys tomorrow. If you have any questions, I will ask you tomorrow first thing in the morning. So you can come back. Tuberosity can also get fractured. The muscle that is attached to is the subscapularis. Subscapularis comes from the front of the scapula, but you should imagine it's not the front of the chest, but at the back of the chest. So from the front of the scapula, but at the back of the chest, winds around and comes to the front to the subscapula, to the lesser uh, tuberosity. So what is its action? Will it rotate it medially or rotate it laterally? Subscapularis. What else can it be? What else can be the action when it is coming from the medial, medial towards the midline and going into the humerus? Will it abduct or will it adapt? From the other. So, very different a little bit. So, if you lose adduction, you lose medial rotation, if you get a fracture of the lesser tumors. So, in the questions, you will not get a direct question. I will not question you saying, okay, lesser, uh, lesser tuberosity is fractured, and uh, what movement is lost? No. I'll probably give you the scenario that he's unable to bring his arm or touch his opposite shoulder. When you have to touch your opposite shoulder, people on the shoulder, what are you doing to your arm? Are you going to do the medium? Okay, so when, when you want to touch the tip of your opposite shoulder, what is the action of the 
If the pectoral region is paralyzed, you cannot go grey the between your chest and your arm and your arm. When you hold a big book, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're multitasking. Oh. Like this, holding a big book. What are you doing? You're, you're adapting your arm against your chest, which means the pectoral region is active. Right? And if the pectoral region is weak, you cannot hold a big book between your chest and your arm. So the question is based that way, right? You got to understand the functional aspect. So, latissimus dorsi, it's a muscle that comes from the back. It comes from the back and then inserts into the medial lip of the bicep, down. So pectoralis major into the lateral lip and latissimus dorsi into the medial lip. Two so strong lines. So, pectoralis major and and uh, lateral dorsi and teres major. There's another one. All the three of them will immediately rotate and adapt. So, the lower fragment we will deal with this later. Don't worry. I will tell you about how this model where it attaches and where it inserts. I'm going to do that in the next class. So, when these two muscles will cause the lower segment to medially move, that is adapt, not medial rotation, medially displacement. Medial displacement is different from medial rotation. What do you mean by medial displacement? It's going medially towards the midline of the body. So, it is getting adapted by these two muscles, and this part is getting abducted by the supraspinal muscle. So, that's how the fracture would look. That's how the limb would look. There's an upper abduction and a lower abduction. The Charlie Brown and Snoopy Show will return after these messages. Mr. Turtle, how many minutes did it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? Why, he never made it without biting. Ask Mr. Owl. Mr. Owl. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? Let's find out. One, two, three, three. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? The world may never know. So this is my new sponsor, uh, Tootsie Roll and Tootsie Roll Pop. Uh, I appreciate your support and let's Look forward to more success. Supracondylar fracture. I spoke to you this morning about it. Now there are two important structures which go in front of the humerus down into the forearm. There's the median nerve and the brachial artery. The brachial artery is an artery which continues from axillary artery. Axillary artery continues from the brachial artery. Brachial artery goes down to the forearm and divides into the radial artery. So the brachial artery is the artery that we use to measure the blood pressure. So that artery runs in front of the arm along with the radial. So we are bound to be injured in the supra condyla fracture. I showed you this also, this pathology. That's a medium epicondyle fracture. So what can be injured? Ulnar. 
Okay, now we get to the fracture of the middle of the shaft of the humerus. Now you should understand something here. Again, the same thing. If you read carefully, there's a fracture in the proximal one-third above the insertion of the delta. That means the fracture is here. What happens to that particular fracture is here? These muscles will pull it immediately. What are the muscles which pull the upper fragment immediately? The pectoralis medial, lateral viscosity. The same thing, they pull it immediately. And the lower fragment is pulled laterally by the deltoid. You see this picture, you'll understand. If there's a fracture here, this arrow will, there's the muscles that, that is pulling it immediately. This arrow is abducting it, so the lower fragment will be moved laterally. Look at the earlier one. The upper fragment is pulled laterally. The lower fragment is pulled medially. Now, in this fracture, way down, this was here, this is the next fracture that is here. The upper fragment is pulled medially, and the lower fragment is pulled laterally. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. You've got, to, you've got to work on this. You can't go back and read. Attachment, the position of the fracture and the attachment of the muscles. Whether the, uh, if you look at this fracture, it is way above the attachment of the delta. So, when these muscles are pulling the upper fragment medially, this is not being, this you cannot pull it medially. So, the deltoid is abducting it and pulling it away that. You've got to use your common sense. And then comes the lower part. Fractures are going to be distal to both the insertions of the uh, deltoid. Abduction of the proximal segment. Now, this is the one. Abduction of the proximal segment and distal uh, segment is pulled up. You see this portion is pulled up? Why is it being pulled up? By the biceps. The triceps. They're pulling it up. Right? So, that effects you can see based on the position of the fracture. So three fractures. At the neck, surgical neck, above the insertion of the deltoid, and way down below the insertion of the deltoid. Right? For the moment you read this, get a hang of this, and once you know the attachment of the muscles, then it becomes clear. What are the features, what are the complications that can occur when you have a fracture of the humerus that is the supracondylar fracture? I said two things will be affected. One, radial artery. Two, medial nerve. Even the ulna and radial nerve can be damaged because they are running pretty close. By. So when the artery is damaged, there is a blood collection in front of the forearm. Which blocks the radial artery to supply blood to the forearm. And so, what happens? The muscles do not get nourishment, and over a long period of time, they will get contraction. What is contraction? Permanent flexion, a permanent uh, deformity that can occur in humans. So, 
you find that this kind of a deformity, where you get flexion of the wrist, fixed flexion of the wrist, is called the Oakman's ischemic contracture. Oakman's ischemic contracture occurs in which fractures? Supracondylar fractures. Why? Because the blood accumulates after the artery is torn. Which artery is torn? Radial artery. So, distal to this torn part, there is blood collection, there is no blood flowing into the head, and the muscle will fall out with fibros and have a permanent disability. This is called Wokman's. So, it can injure the median nerve, it can injure the alga nerve, or the radial nerve, because both, all, all three of them in order of importance, in order of frequency, it is the median nerve, ulna nerve, This is the kind of fracture, the shape that you get when there's a supracondylar fracture. This whole thing looks like the letter S. S configuration. This can occur when you call an outstretched hands, push, F, O, O, S, H push injuries. Or you can, you know, when you stand on your elbow like this and your arm like this, the elbow can be extended and you can have supracondylar fracture. This is another type of injury where you fall on your elbow and you also can get supracondylar fracture in this kind of injury. Just to show the mechanism of injury, how you can get injured, not just knocking yourself Okay, so now coming to the forearm, you get two bones, you get all the parts of the bones. And I told you about the collis fracture, the distal end, the displaced dorsally, the proximal end is displaced ventrally. The opposite of collis is the Smith's fracture. So about the radius, got a head, got a neck, the head articulates with the capitula. The head has got a ligament called the annular ligament. It is surrounding the head, holding the head in place, preventing it from coming down. Little children, the head is small. So somebody playfully pulls a little child by the forearm, they pull off the radius outside the superior radius of the joint. And that happens, it's called a nurse means elbow. Nurse means elbow because the nurse will be fed up with that guy and pull him and yank him and pull the forearm. That's because of the head slipping out from his attachment in the annular ligament. Okay, so you get all the bones, carpal bones. Radial tuberosity gives attachment to which muscle? The biceps. Does the biceps take attachment to the humerus? Yes or no? Which joint are you moving? What is the joint you are moving? Atlanto axis. Okay, the styloid process. I told you about the styloid process of both the bones. Which one is more distal? Which is more distal? Radius or ulna? Radius. I can't hear you. 
radius. So there is no distance. Okay. Again, this is called structure. This is just means elbow. When the head is pulled down. And about the alma, you have the internal process, the thoracic process. Show you all this as well. Yes. Now, there's another important thing to fractions. We're talking about fractions. We go to the upper level, lower level. We talk about fractions. We talk about deformities. We talk about neuromuscular injuries. So now you're looking at this fracture in three days. There are two muscles that you see here. The one coming down to the radial tuberosity is the biceps. What is the chief action of the biceps? What is the main principal action of the biceps? No. Supination. Then flexion. The main act, main flexor is brachialis. So when this fracture occurs over here, above the insertion of a muscle that is called the pronator teres, so what is the action of pronator teres? Pronation. So it comes from the medial side, inserts into the radius, so it is trying to rotate it. Pronate it. Because it is broken here, the lower fragment is pronated and the upper fragment is supinated. You see that? So what should an orthopedic surgeon do in this case? Can he just put a nail straight away and leave it like that? Will he permanently pronate the patient and after that he'll sue it? So you have to supinate the forearm, then put the nail and do it. And uh, you set the fracture edge. Whereas if there's a fracture here, the action of the biceps nullifies the action of the pronator teres. So the forearm is in a neutral position. Now if somebody breaks this forearm, radius, like this, in this case, in the lowest, the second case, which is the best way to reduce this fracture? Which is the best position you place a cast? Then you keep the cast like this, with the forearm supinated or forearm slightly pronated. Pronated. Why? Simple reason. Why do you say Okay, I'm going to pick up this and bring it. So how will you pick it up? Pick it up like this. Find it very difficult, right? So you cannot supinate the arm and then fix it. Keep it in a pronated position. Semi-pronated position is the best position by fixing it. Yes, I finished all the things here. Now coming to the carpal bones. The importance of the carpal bones is the fractures, avascular necrosis. Well, let's take each bone. Scaphoid, most common bone to get fractured, falling on an outstretched hand. Scaphoid, what happens to the scaphoid in this? This is the bone. If the fracture is more distal, the chances of healing is greater. If the 
fractures, more cracks in the room. The chances of healing is poor. So the percentage of healing is shown in this range of them. Whatever happens, if the blood to the scaphoid is lost because of fracture, six years or maybe three years down the line, if you have fractured your scaphoid and not bother to treat it, three years down the line, you take an x-ray again, you don't see the scaphoid. Because it undergoes a process called avascular necrosis. So the scaphoid is a very dangerous bone. I want you to extend your thumb. No, extend your thumb. And look at the hollow on the back of the root of the thumb. You can put some snuff. <laughs> snuff. It's called the anatomical snuff box, not because I want to snuff something. It's an anatomical snuff box. And lying in the depth of the snuff box is the scaphoid. So, if you fracture the scaphoid, and I catch hold of your wrist, and press on that, and get a lot of pain. So, that's how you identify clinically fractured scaphoid, because you won't get any swelling, because it is so deep inside, unlike the other bones where you can get a diffusion of swelling, the scaphoid will never get swelling. So you get pain in the anatomical snuff box. Lunate, very notorious. I'll tell you why. I'll become a, a mason for the time being. Okay? I'm going to build an arch. This is called carpal tunnel. This is diagrammatic representation of a carpus. It's got a shape like this. You see? This is the palmar surface. Palmar surface. This is the dorsal surface. So the dorsal surface is wider than the palmar surface. If you want to make a real nice tunnel, I'm going to make everything similar. But what happens to the lunate? computers, you 
keep typing and typing and typing, you get pain around the shoulder. Not only shoulders, but also this. This is carpet tunnel syndrome. So one of the causes of carpet tunnel syndrome is forward displacement of the lunate, or dislocation of the lunate. And lunate can also undergo avascular necrosis. Trifusion can also get fractured, cause pain. This is a diagram to show the heating stage. Hook of habit can get fractured. You see how close the other nerves. So that can get injured. And also this tendon, long tendon, flexor tendon going to the ring finger can get avulsed, can come out. I think I have to do it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go first breathing.